together today. <sighs> yeah, why has this week felt like two weeks rolled into one? Because this was like the weekend of moon shit. Like oh, there yeah, was yeah, an yeah, eclipse. Yeah. Yes. It's a new yes. moon. There was something else. It was Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. For all the astrology girlies that follow us. Like Legit. We know. We know what's happening. I went to like a Friday the 13th get together mm-hmm. after work Friday night at my friend's house. And we had like little like fall mocktails and like someone made a baked brie that looked like a pumpkin. And um, I'm sad you didn't get to enjoy that, but cute. Yeah. It, I mean, it smelled good. But then everybody kept joking about like, it's Friday the 13th. Something bad's going to happen. And then like the one girl had to leave early because her husband got in a car accident. So something bad did happen. Yeah. He's okay, though. So that's the it important that thing. Is good. My husband, a long time ago, actually, I believe his car accident was on a Friday the 13th. Wild. It was wild. It was very upsetting. And I now realize that we've known each other so long that like we've been through multiple car accidents together, <laughs> which does not bode well. You guys have been together like a third of your life. Uh, a half. A half, <laughs> half of your half life. Half of my life. Wow. So now everybody knows my, <laughs> my marital status. Sorry, um, we've talked about him before. Yes. Usually when we hear your tater tot running around. So. Yes. But yeah, it's been a really long week. We've had all the fun astrology stuff happening and just my my Friday the thirteenth new moon tarot readings that I did for everyone were like really spot on for people and then mine was like, Hey dummy, you got a lot of feelings, but sometimes you need to like move past your feelings and like accept things for what they are and you need to also focus on other people's feelings. And I was like, No, thank you. I don't think I will. <laughs> And then today, I'm just like, listen, I keep thinking about that tarot card because I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> so I should have asked for a tarot reading. Spot on. Um, I'll I do one for you on Samhain. Okay. We'll do like your whole year. Oh, boy. I always do one for me for the whole year. Oh, boy. Everything that I keep running across on like the algorithm of Instagram and stuff says that like now is your time to shine. Now is your time to do big and great things i'm like what does this mean because i'm trying i'm trying really hard (laughs) like maybe it's like that guy um that we have to deal with at work that we were talking about earlier like maybe your time to shine is going to be you like just clocking him (laughs) and then i'm going to respond like tatum and scream when sydney punched gail and i'll be like boom (laughs) bitch went down (laughs) boom super bath (laughs) oh And then I'll get murdered because that's what happened to Tatum. R.I.P. All right. Anyway, now that we've had some lighthearted fun, let's talk about some really depressing shit. Yep. Uh, (laughs) I will tell I will tell you that uh, in in reading this, I I realized because it happened in 1990 that I was like, I for someone who like grew up in this decade and stuff like that, I don't remember this being talked about however i always like joke but it's like not a joke that being a millennial especially being a young millennial girl um john benet ramsey was like you know like the whole like meme going around of like what's your roman empire like 
for small children having to go to school in the 90s with no cell phones or anything like that our roman empire was like don't get murdered and abducted going to school yeah um so like my parents taught us like basic self-defense stuff my dad which you've met big guy they literally like picked us up and they were like okay so if an attacker comes this is what you need to do scratch them so there's dna under your fingernails i'm like i'm like five (laughs) and i'm learning this in preparation for kindergarten or in first grade yeah i i took a self-defense class in college in philadelphia because temple like really strongly encouraged all the female or female identifying students to take it and we're basically like if you go a north or a block north of campus you're on your own you're probably gonna get mugged just stay on campus so yeah i remember our final for that class was like you were gonna get one of three scenarios and then you just had to fight your way out of it and there was like a guy in like huge like padding almost stay puff marshmallow man type mm-hmm. padding he had a bunch of pads on so that you could just punch the crap out of him and kick him and he was like uh he's probably like a really low level like rookie cop who was just like doing extra time right, with right. campus police because our teacher had been like the police chief of philadelphia at one point and like I think mine was like I was supposed to be at an ATM and he grabbed me from behind and like it's always from behind which is terrifying yeah. and I I got out of it and I hit him so hard that I heard him go Ooh! <laughs> like under the padding and ran and then afterwards he was just like damn girl and I was like I got an A right so <laughs> yes but I also this made me really think about like I mean obviously I was like four in 1990 so this was not that part of the 90s no. for me but the later part of the 90s, I remember, like, being in scenarios sort of like this. Yes. And I'm like, God, how easily something awful could have happened. Yes. So and that's what I'm thinking, too, is, like, for for what we're going to talk about today, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I feel like, even if we didn't discuss it, it's definitely something that, like, this happened right at the beginning of the decade and, and made national news, so it... It definitely shaped kind of the decade, and for for millennials, just between that and John Bonet and other like abductions, cold cases, murders, you know, it what a wildly terrifying time to grow up in. And this was pre pre cell phone days, like right. And I know that's like a new trend now. Is like I've been talking a lot about that with other other millennials at at work about. Uh, the new trend of Gen Z, like using flip phones and phones that like can't get on the internet because they like the appeal of like being kind of more off grid than they would be with a smartphone. Like I understand it, but you also have to understand if if you like lost service and you don't have internet on your phone, and if there's not a payphone around, which you know anymore, there's no payphones around you had really no way of getting a hold of your parents or like an adult if you were in a bind somewhere like i was so excited when i got like texting on my phone and when i like got wi-fi on my phone yeah when you didn't have to like keep hitting the button because you accidentally hit the internet one and you knew it was going to charge you a dollar and you were so scared yes yeah 
So it's just, yeah, stuff to think about because I'm like, in, in a way, I feel much safer being out and about with like a cell phone because I'm just like, there's multiple ways on that device to get a hold of me. Yeah. I had a conversation with one of my, my fellow students recently who's significantly younger than me. She's like 21. And she was asking me about like the memes of like, oh yeah, like Friday night, my parents thought I was spending the night at my friend's house, but really I was dying of alcohol poisoning in a cornfield. She's like, did you really do that? And I was like, yeah, people really did that. She's like, you can't do that now. Like parents can track your location on everything. Yeah. Like, you can't get away with anything. So <laughs> pluses and minuses, I guess. I Yeah, I guess. I I don't know. I don't <laughs> Now having a tater tot, now I have like some skin in this game and I'm like, I I understand like Liam Neeson's uh, I will find you. Yeah. <laughs> so I get it. Like if something were to happen to my tater tot, I would be I would be all over that. So um, now that we've had that little sort of like teaser of what we're doing uh, today, we are going to tell you about the murder of Lisa Pruitt, which happened in Shaker Heights, Ohio. So that is Northeast Ohio near cleveland more affluent area of northeast ohio yeah um, cleveland's a very interesting place in that you have like cleveland and then you have all of the suburbs and then it's like certain parts of cleveland you're like oh scary and then other parts of cleveland it's like good who lives here good god yeah and especially this part of um shaker heights like the streets that are mentioned i have driven through this neighborhood so many times and i had no idea about this i had no recollection of this happening until i recently read a book about it which is it it is an idyllic Mm -hmm. neighborhood it essentially was set it was when it was sort of like founded and established it was a planned utopia like the the van swearingen brothers who were like uh like train like railroad magnets they were also shakers which is where Shaker Heights comes from. They were like, we're going to set up this idyllic community. It was like a time in society where there was an industrial boom. And so when you were creating new neighborhoods and communities, there was a big emphasis on setting them up around nature. So it is like full of beautiful Mm -hmm. trees and like winding roads and these huge mansions because it was a very affluent community, as Beth mentioned. And at the time, if if these two brothers didn't give you the go-ahead, you weren't allowed to live there. So they really cultivated (laughs) this area. And then in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge push for integration. And so they were giving home loans to, like, black families to move into these white neighborhoods and vice versa. They were giving money to white families to go in and essentially gentrify these black neighborhoods. But also in Shaker Heights, they were also giving money to any black family that lived there that wanted to move out. So... (laughs) you know take that with a grain of salt um it is still a very affluent neighborhood there are huge beautiful mansions hathaway brown is in shaker heights which is a prestigious all girls private school it's basically like an ivy league pipeline if you go there you're gonna end up at like yale so a lot of doctors and lawyers live there and there's quite a few famous people from shaker heights Mm -hmm. probably the most popular one for people our age would be like mgk the rapper Machine Gun Kelly, he's from Shaker Heights. Uh, Kid Cuddy grew up there, who's another rapper. Joshua Radden, the musician. Paul Newman was born there. Molly Shannon from Saturday Night Live. I did not realize all these people were Fred, from. 
Fred Willard, who okay. is like, um, he's in a lot of Christopher Guest movies. Mm-hmm. He also played the grandpa, not the Ed O'Neill, who was always on it, but the uh, the other grandpa on um, Modern Family. Okay. So he's from there. Chef Michael Simon is from there. David Wayne from Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> and who I didn't know, but I just found out does the voice of Courtney on Bob's Burgers. Oh. Um, Carter Bays, who created How I Met Your Mother, is from there, which is why Ted Mosby is from Shaker Heights on the show. Also on Leave it to Beaver, Ward Cleaver was from Shaker Heights, that character. And uh, Celeste Ng, who wrote Little Fires Everywhere, she's from Shaker Heights. I did know that. (laughs) And then if you're a a reality TV fan, Sheree Whitfield, Sheree Whitfield from Real Housewives of Atlanta is also from Shaker Heights. So... Quite a lot of famous people are from there. And yeah, it is just a very pretty neighborhood. I remember they have like a garlic festival there, (laughs) which is fun to go to. Um, Shaker Square is very pretty. They have like regional transit through there. So there's a lot of like downtown. There's a lot of the trolley like Mm -hmm. tracks and things like that. It just was kind of a beautiful, safe, nice place to live until um, the 1980s. And I'm going to start... It's going to seem like I'm coming from like left field and there's no connection, but I I promise there's a connection. Yes, I do know the connection uh, there. As I was telling uh, Britta before we started recording, we will be heavily referencing uh, James James Renner and his book, uh, Little Crazy Children. And I, so I did not read this book. Britta did read this book. I did research though. And as I was telling her, when you try to search um lisa pruitt shaker heights like case um or murder or anything like that in google the first thing that comes up is really anything by james renner like you have to kind of go through google and really pick and choose if you're trying to find things that aren't affiliated with his book um and i would say that he's probably the best authority we have on this case and it is considered by Cleveland scene the fifth like biggest unsolved mystery of like Northeast Ohio. And they also were like, you know, we th- really thought we would be kind of done with this like after a while, but there's just more and more cases that keep happening. We are going to be as, you know, empathetic, uh, sensitive as possible to Lisa Pruitt because she was 16 when she died so she would be in her 40s today and she's the type of girl that she was popular she was just like what you would call a typical teenage girl she could have been she could have been either one of us at that age had a boyfriend was really like active in school and whatnot and her life was cut far too short far too soon so before we we get more into lisa who really did sound like an amazing person i'm going to talk about the porters who also lived in Shaker Heights in the same... Like, I was going to say the same street, right? Yeah. Dorothy Porter was an artist. She's like a renowned artist. And her husband, Philip Porter, was the executive editor of The Plain Dealer in the 60s, which was pretty much the only major newspaper in the area at that time. Like RIP, right? Yeah. So they, (laughs) they were essentially like, they were the hoi ploy. They were very well known about as close to royalty as you could get in Cleveland. They lived on the same street that the rest of this tale will happen on. And they had a daughter, Jolie, 
who is an adult. She was married. She had a son named James, I believe. And she started to get worried because she hadn't heard from her parents in a few days. So she sent her son over to go check on them. And when he got there, he saw that the Sunday plane dealer was just chilling in the driveway, which knowing his grandpa, it was like, absolutely not. That's a bad sign. So all the doors were locked, but the lights were on inside. And when he knocked on the door, nobody answered. So he went home and told his mom. The two of them went back to the house and Jolie used her spare key to open the door. So they open the door, they start calling and nobody answers. And that's like the spidey senses start tingling. Right, right. She's like, it's already a bad sign that like the doors are locked, the lights are on, no one's answering. The newspaper hadn't been picked up. Like dad would have went and got that. So she sent James to go get the next door neighbor. And when they came back, James and the neighbor went upstairs while she stayed right by the front door. Mm -hmm. When they went upstairs, James found his grandfather, Philip, in bed. He had been stabbed twice in the back. He was laying face down, still in his pajamas. His fingers were holding his glasses. And next to the bed was a thermos of milk and a plate of crackers. So it is assumed that like he was getting ready to go to bed when this happened. Right. They searched the house and they found Dorothy in the basement. She had been stabbed once and then strangled to death with the cord from her iron. That's awful. Yes. Also very personal. Yes. <laughs> so the chief of police at the time was Peter Gray. And he told the media that their murders appeared to be a burglary, burglary gone wrong and they had no leads. Philip and Dorothy had last been seen alive on May 17th on a Friday night when they'd hosted a cocktail party at their house. Their guests left around 7 o'clock, and it appeared the break-in had happened between 7 and 9 p.m., which is like... So shortly after the cocktail party. Yeah, and it also still would have been light outside at that time, so it's kind of weird that someone would be breaking in. Springtime. And they determined that somebody had cut through the screen of a kitchen window and climbed inside. Even more strange is that nothing really seemed to be disturbed. So this wasn't like a, I'm going to come in and trash the place and grab what I can and get out. It was like a very calculated movement through the house. And there was like no sign of a struggle. And Dorothy's purse and wallet were just out in the open. So he didn't, whoever did it, didn't take anything really. We say he because in most true crime <laughs> cases, 90% of it, it is, it is a white man. Yeah. So, like, nothing is appears to be stolen. There's no signs of a struggle. It's no trash and grab. And the chief of police said, if there hadn't been two bodies, you wouldn't have even known anything had happened. Right, because the house was, like, otherwise immaculate. Yeah, so the working theory is that, like, they were getting ready to go to bed, and she came downstairs and sort of interrupted the burglary, and that's why she was killed, and then the burglar went upstairs to... But- finish i guess okay so hear me out i i wouldn't call myself a particularly like adept true crime girly but (laughs) i will say i've read i've read some things i've done some presentations and research on true crime when you strangle somebody it takes a lot of effort to strangle somebody it takes six minutes to strangle someone to death and if i were a burglar say I didn't carry a gun on me because like obviously a gun would be noisy but I did carry a knife because that would not be noisy wouldn't you just like do 
not a strangulation. <laughs> yeah. Because Unless it, you didn't want her to scream, I guess. Again, I don't uh, like there are ways to kill people without making yeah. them scream, but like you know, I I don't know. It it's, just it that feels very like I got something to prove to this. It's uh, a very strange case to, for lack of better explanation. Yes. And you know, this is 1990 so this is really before like dna was what it is today right right the oj oj simpson case i know is really what broke open like the use of regular use of dna technology and using that to pursue criminals in court and like really verify that there's still lots of people that have been wrongly convicted and are still in jail because of not using yes dna yes and really their only suspect in this murder this double murder was an unidentifiable black man that a 15 year old neighborhood kid named david brannigan had seen running away from the house that night so david said that he and his two friends had broken into the house next door he admitted that as like it was just something fun for them to do and they saw the man leaving the back door and then the case went cold essentially from there so then we jump forward five years to 1990. All right. Lisa's 16. Uh, she lived with her parents, Gary and Lynette, and people described her as like perfect to a fault. She was really active in her youth church group. She had mentored people through her church. She played the flute in marching band. Um, she loved listening to Cat Stevens and James Taylor. She played field hockey, so she was also athletic as well as creative. She, as Beth said, was really popular. She had a lot of friends. Um, she was really smart. And she was on student council. She was on the student group about race relations. She played softball. She wrote for the school paper. I found a poem that she wrote for Ooh. the student lit magazine called Crystal Dreams. And it goes, flitting, floating, falling on the ground. I freeze on children's eyelashes and blur their altered vision of the world. They see a different earth than I, of candy and playgrounds and eternal smiles. I see the truth. Cold, bare trees stripped of life and hard ground. So she's like a very talented yeah. poet. And like she was always writing. She was writing like journals. She was writing poems. She was writing short stories. This is the thing that really like sticks with me that makes it's like so sweet and it makes me so sad. But she had what she called her happy book which is where she would go through newspaper headlines and stories that made her smile and she Aww. would cut them out and like post it in this scrapbook. It's fine. I want to cry on this podcast today. I know. I'm not wearing she makeup. She just really it's seemed fine. like a terrific person. Um, and like I said, she was really smart. She took honors classes. She was really good at chemistry. And her dad remembers like helping with her homework because he was a chemist like for his job. And so he like enjoyed helping her with that. And she kind of ran with this group of friends who were also really smart, who were known as the AP Posse. AP and so Posse. they all oh. took AP classes and basically had the run of the school. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted. And their parents were all like rich career professionals. So they were focused on their jobs and were just kind of oblivious to like what these kids were doing. But it was also the 90s. So you didn't feel like you had to know like what right. your kids were doing all the time. Right. They had that yeah. independent streak. But as I said, like the way you describe her, you could easily insert that into like 
somebody you know or like somebody you identify with or even parts of yourself like I'm like yes I did a lot of that type of stuff in high school yeah like I was in that same type of group one of her friends said that she was always the person that like if someone was having a bad day like it became her like sole purpose to cheer them up or like make them laugh so yeah (laughs) yeah some I was reading some actually I was reading a reddit thread and they were like she sounds perfect how is there any type of suspect list of like people that would want to see her murdered yeah so lisa started dating a boy named dan dreifert he was also a musician he was the singer in a rock band um he was creative just like she was and also part of that ap crowd at school he did kind of like have this like rebellious streak in I was gonna him say, sounds kind of like a bad boy yeah he so he was like a band nerd who lived in a mansion but <laughs> like he he was he loved rem and he had like a garage band called your I mother love, and her howling commandos i love that we're like he was a bad boy he listened to rem yeah I know. We'll just <laughs> wait till we get to some people later in the story and their descriptions. But the band practiced in the basement of his house in a wing. Can you imagine having a wing in your house? As the Howling <laughs> Commando Room. And he and his friends got into a little trouble at school because they started wearing a single black glove and calling themselves the Black Glove Cult. Oh, geez. But it was a reference to their fencing gloves. Like, they were all on the fencing team. And so they would wear just one of their fencing gloves and call themselves the Black Glove Cult, like, as a joke. What nerds. I know. (laughs) And they, like, made a flyer, which, you know, like, back then, like, it's 1990. So, you know, it's, like, them, like, cutting out things and putting it face down on, like, a Xerox machine. Yeah, so it looks like the serial killer, like, note you see in the movies and stuff like that. So it had like a picture of a, a glove on it and it had like teeth on the gloves and it said, beware, it bites. And it had like G-O-D on it. And they were like, what does G-O-D stand for? And he was like, it's gynecologist of death. And they're like, where would that even come from? He's like, it's a Monty Python sketch. And the reason it said beware, it bites was because um, Lisa and her best friend Catherine had like stolen one of the boys gloves because they thought the cult was like dumb mm-hmm. and so he made the teeth in the picture to make it look dangerous so that she'd give it back <laughs> God, yeah and so really like the like you have that and then he also liked to get high on cough syrup which apparently they all kind of did it's like something he learned at church camp so i, I will say Stephen King also uh, got high off of cough syrup when he couldn't have alcohol. So, yeah, I, I guess they would essentially they would chug bottles of Robitussin oh, because if you drank more than the recommended dosage, it had codeine in it. And mm-hmm. like if you drank enough fast enough, it would make you trip like you were on LSD. And Ew, yeah, grape or cherry flavor, both disgusting, both gross. And all I can think of is like in the early 2000s, every girl used Aussie like scrunch spray yeah, in their yeah, hair. Yeah. And oh, I always thought it, it smelled, smelled like Robitussin because yes, it was like grape. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all I can think of oh. is like essentially getting drunk on Aussie scrunch spray. But they're 16, so like that 16, was their yeah. way of illegally getting drunk because you could just go buy it off the shelf then. Like it's, it right. wasn't like an over-the-counter thing. Like you just went to the store and bought a bunch of Robitussin and chugged it with your friends. And they would call them robo-parties. 
Yeah. Ew. Ew. So they'd all just drink Robitussin and like listen to music. You can't even cut that with anything because it. I think it would stop the effects. Yeah. Cocaine. It's pretty, pretty gross in my opinion. Yeah. Whatever. That was their jam. And so. Dan and Lisa had known each other for like years. They'd known each other for a while. But on April 3rd, 1990, that was like when they made it official. And they were on a trip to Germany with the high school band. Wow. Wings of their own houses. Trip to Germany for band. Right. What world? We don't know it. So like at school she would write him like I remember doing this with some of my friends where it's like you multi-page notes yes like, yes uh me and my husband wrote each other high school notes Aww. and the one time I was very excited because I thought I was getting two notes and I was like oh look at you industrious and the second note had like three words on it and was like <laughs> haha just kidding and I was like I feel cheated. That feels like very on brand for him. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, she'd write like these really long notes to him. Um, they would pass each other like secret notes by, they had a copy of Adam's daughter by Gertrude Samuels and they would just like mark certain letters. So it was like an encoded message and they would pass the book back and forth during school. So their teachers couldn't like read the note. Oh, that's actually really cute too. Um, she would record herself on cassette tapes, which now I'm just thinking of that girl who bought cassette the cassette player. Cassette tapes. Yes. God, turn to dust and blow away in the wind. Yep. <laughs> We're so old. Cassette tapes. So she, yeah, she would record herself on cassette tapes. There was like one that she gave him that one side was labeled the long, boring side. And then the other side was labeled the shorter, but still boring side. <laughs> and like she like was singing True Colors by Cindy Lauper oh. on it. So yeah, it's like a very sweet high school romance, but also like many high school romances. It's like your hormones are nuts. So like you fall heavy and hard in love very quickly. And just making out all the time, I'm sure. And doing all that fun stuff. Yes. We've yeah. all, we've all been there, right? Yes. So that summer, Dan had actually spent a little over a month in essentially like a mental institution in Cleveland. Dan's dad ran the pediatric unit at the Cleveland Clinic, and he pulled some strings to have Dan committed. Reason why? He was essentially just being a teenager. Right. Like, he, he didn't want to go to bed when his parents told him to. He was, like, arguing about curfew time. And his dad was a control freak. Oh, see, I read articles that said he had suicidal ideation. And I'm like, okay, like also like a teenager thing right like yeah not like and I don't I don't know if that is true or not but also with his dad being a doctor I think that could be something that his dad said just to get him committed uh, um I know that his parents did find out about the robo parties also so it's essentially just like dad was trying to put him in his place and was like fine you want to be a little smart Alec go away for a month but then now you have like now you have the stigma attached to you that you have like that you've been institutionalized yeah and that you have problems with your mental health right which, which is why it was kind of like hush hush like not a lot of people actually knew that that's where he was 
they may have told like his friends like his really close friends knew lisa knew obviously right um his ex-girlfriend kim who lived behind him knew because she also like sent him things while he was there to sort of cheer him up and i'm assuming some of like you know the ap posse probably knew the truth but a lot of people didn't know right that that's where he was because it was hush hush well but then (laughs) in sight of the long story we're telling here this is not boding well no it's it's really unfortunate timing honestly so on september 13th 1990 lisa had like the best day ever yeah she do you want to say what happened uh she was very excited because dan was getting like out of the institution essentially and she was gonna like hang out with him but she wasn't gonna hang out with him until like six or seven o'clock at night and it was only gonna be like for a few minutes but she was just excited still because he was like home but then she like was like hey you like we can hang out i'll sneak i'll sneak out and i'll come over at like midnight which i was like girl i didn't look up what day september 13th was but i assumed thursday it's a school night yeah (laughs) and i'm like i granted life of the rich and the famous i was like i was definitely in bed by midnight most nights because i worked a part-time job and i did homework and if i was in bed by 11 30 man it was a good night (laughs) Yeah. And that was also while like AOL Instant Messenger my <laughs> my husband because it was cheaper than texting because I didn't have texting on my phone. <laughs> For real. Yeah. They didn't have uh they didn't have AIM then. They didn't have ASL in their little bios. No. Um but it was also a great day because she got her driver's license. Yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. She did get her driver's and license. And she passed like a huge test in her German class. Yes. So it was just like everything after win. Everything's coming up, Lisa. Yes. It was a great day. So much so that Lynette, her mom, made like a special dinner. She baked her a cake to celebrate. Mm. They had like this really nice dinner with all of her favorite foods. And during the day, Dan had been discharged. It was like two o'clock. His dad picked him up. At three, he rode his bike to school. So, like, he lived less than a mile away from high school. So, this is, like, a super short bike ride. So, he hopped on his bike. He rode over to Surprise Lisa. Um, She was studying chemistry with Kim Rathbone, who lived behind him. As soon as he found her, like, the AP posse found (laughs) him. They were like, yo, Dan's back. And so, they were all, like, coming out to hug him. And he, like, walked her to the car. And he went home. And then Kim came over. And they sat on the back porch and talked. And Kim was like, hey, like, I sent you a bunch of stuff while you were, like, away. Um, I would like some of it back. Like, I just, can you give me that stuff? And then while she was there, he was like, can you cut my hair? So they had this, like, weird hangout where she'd cut his hair. (laughs) And she was like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, do you want me to make it into, like, a point in the back? He's like, I trust you. Do whatever you want. Oh, boy. So weirdly normal Thursday for it being a not normal Thursday at six he ate dinner with his parents around eight o'clock Ken Workman who everybody called Tex showed up Um, Tex was dating Deb Dan's older sister but she was already away she went to Ohio University so she was already at college for the semester 
and um, Tex and Dan were just like hanging out on the porch and shooting the shit. Dan was like playing his guitar. And at nine o'clock, Lisa had her dad bring her over and she got out to talk with Dan. And she was like, I can't stay long. Like, dad said I can come over for a couple minutes after flute practice. So I'm just here for a little bit. Her dad chilled in the car in the driveway while they walked around the corner of the house and had like a little like kissy kissy session. <laughs> and um, how romantic. Yeah. And that's when they decided that she was going to sneak out right. and come over. And Dan was like, well, I'm going to invite Chris Jones and Becca Boatwright over as well. And we'll have like a little robo party tonight <laughs> since I'm back. And then Lisa went home. And around 10 o'clock, Tex rode Dan's bike to Shaker Square to get cigarettes for them to split. And he decided he was going to stop in Arabica, the coffee shop. Oh, yes. Which, what a throwback. Yes, yes. I remember reading about Arabica and I went, I haven't heard that name in 84 years. Yes, I turned into Rose at the beginning of Titanic. (laughs) Like, I can still smell the fresh ground beans. So while Tex was there, he saw David Brannigan and Kevin Young. So enter Kevin Young, who becomes an important player in this later. Yes. So Kevin was about to start his freshman year at the Ohio State University. You have to put emphasis on the the. Neither of us are alums from the Ohio State (laughs) University, but we we know. We know the culture. Yes. They're intense about it. Tex and Kevin were like BFFs, five ever. They even went so far as to do like where you cut your finger and you put your bloody fingers together to become blood Blood brothers brothers. and like swear your allegiance. Another 90s throwback. Yeah. Super gross. Yep. (laughs) Biohazard. Yep. Um, So Tex and Kevin kind of like chilled. They are saying for probably about 45 minutes. Tex told Kevin that Dan was planning to host his robo party that night. And uh, Lisa was coming over around 12 or 1230. And so was Chris Jones. And Tex was supposed to spend the night there. And Kevin was like, cool. Why are you telling me this? Like, I'm not invited. Like, they hate me. I'm an outsider. He also had, like, his own mental health issues, which I will get into later. Right. He was also what you would consider while he was, like, I think in that high school, in the, he was not in their, their circle. He was considered kind of the weird kid at school. Yeah. he's The description of him makes him sound essentially like Eddie from Stranger Things. Like he liked Metallica. He dressed in black. He had like long hair that like came down like over his eyes. He was really smart like mm-hmm. the rest of them. But because he was into, like, Metallica and D&D, and they were like, oh, he's, like, the weird kid. God forbid. Yeah. I had the biggest crush of, on Eddie, though, like, in Stranger Things. I was like, oh. Sames. And then I found out he was British, and I went, oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Kevin is also, like, I've seen pictures of him, and he was, like, a good-looking dude in high school. So he... Because he was sort of an outsider and he had these mental health issues, he, like, didn't have a great time with girls. Right. He would get shot down a lot and he would have, like, very big emotional reactions to that. Right. And. Which that group of friends or group adjacent, I won't call them friends, but that group adjacent knew about that. 
Yes, Becca was like part of it at one point. They were supposed to go to prom together and then he like he wanted to go as more than friends and she said no, we're just going as friends and he didn't take that well and then he like called it off. And I've heard conflicting stories about why he called it off. But there there was like a point of contention then that's like, "Oh, he's so weird." And then like he dumped her as like a prom date and it's it's like very convoluted high school drama. But he also and I and I don't know, I'm not going to speculate on why, because some people just feel this way, but he was also kind of known to have some not-so-nice, um, like, racist views about things. Like, mm-hmm. he would often go on rants about how, like, Jewish people and black people were, quote-unquote, ruining Shaker Heights. Wow. Yeah. So, while it is, like, okay, he's misunderstood and I feel for him, he also, like, said some really problematic things. Now, again, I just want to remind our dear listeners, our cast of characters so far. Lisa, main character, um, has friends, boyfriend, Dan. Dan Dreifert. Thank you, Dan, um, who just got released. They're about to have people over. They meet Kevin uh, at Tex. Their friend Tex meets Kevin at Arabica. And also... David Brannigan, who we mentioned from 1985, who's like neighborhood scoundrel, scumbag. What? Um, I was trying to bury the lead with that. Back, sorry. But yes. <laughs> yes. He is the one who broke into the house next door to the porters and reported seeing someone leave through the back door. Yes. So he he is now would be in his like early 20s. He, yeah, he'd be about 20. Mm-hmm. And so he was also at Arabica. And I think that's everybody besides the other couple of friends they they have. Yeah. So far. Just wanted to, again, reiterate, because I know we have listeners who are like, wait, who am I following? We'll also say upon reading this, because uh, James Renner had some, like, flashback things. I was, there were a lot of D names that I was trying to keep straight, and I'm like, Yeah, there's another friend named Daniel. No, I don't know who I'm reading about. Tex was there until about 10.30-ish talking to Kevin. Then he rode the bike back to Dan's house to drop off the bike and some cigarettes. And he, like, left for the evening. I was about to ask how he got cigarettes as a high school student. And I was like, Beth, there are ways. (laughs) Well, Tex was also, he was 16, but he was a little bit of a juvenile delinquent. Like, he skipped school a lot. He was dating Deb, who was, like, you know, two, three years older. Right. Um, he kind of had a troubled background and lived kind of a rough life with like his mom in a in a small apartment. So as I said, there are ways. Yeah. At like eleven thirty, Dan went to his room and listened to music. Around midnight, his sister Deb called from school and talked to Dan's dad on the phone in the master bedroom. Why is Dan's dad awake at midnight? I know. Well, I have more questions about Dan's dad in just a moment. But um, so he's in the master bedroom and then like mom was in the next room over picking up the landline on like the other line. So they're in like two different rooms talking to Deb on the phone, which is like such a 90s thing. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And Dan was just hanging out like on the bed with his dad listening like over the phone and, and like having a little bit of a conversation, too. And then when their parents said goodnight, Dan went into the den and talk to his sister for a little bit longer. So, at 1.05 in the morning, police were called to Dan's house. 
Dan actually called them because he said he was worried. And when the police got there, he was waiting at the end of the driveway, which the police were like, okay, a little weird. Normally we meet people at their house, but whatever. And Dan was like, my girlfriend Lisa was supposed to come over at 1230 and she never showed up. And then my dad heard screaming. I didn't hear them, but he told me that he heard screams. And he was like, they knew that she was going to come over. And so we like went outside. He essentially said he forgot that Lisa was coming over to meet him that night. Yeah, I've read the things I've read was that he initially heard screaming and he went outside to check didn't see anybody outside then got worried because lisa was supposed to be over and then looked further saw lisa's bike nearby then called the cops so there's already conflicting information here yes because that's one side of the story but then what he told the police was that he didn't hear screaming his dad heard screaming and told him to go outside and check and then his dad's version of it is like they heard somebody screaming outside that sounded like a girl he dan had been cleaning in his room after he got off the phone with his sister and at, at like after midnight yeah. which again what are you people doing up like i assume dad's dan's dad works a nine to five what are you doing up right so he well he is a doctor so maybe he makes his own hours like maybe I, he doesn't I go in on fridays maybe i don't i just questions but i have questions dan's room and his dad's room were connected by a bathroom okay and his dad from his room was like did you hear that and dan was like i don't know what you're talking about like and he went into the room and he didn't hear anything and so his dad robert said my first inclination was to run outside and see what happened realizing i was stark naked i quickly looked at dan to determine if he was more fully clothed than i why are you naked robert did like dan leave the room to talk to deb and you immediately just stripped like what is going on here They failed to mention that in what I was reading. Yeah. And so he's like, I looked at him and saw that he was wearing a pair of brown moccasins. And this was important to me because I knew he could get out quicker than me. Oh, my. Well, I think he can. He's not going to flash the neighborhood. Also, why is he wearing moccasins? It's like one o'clock in the morning. 1230. So. Well, I can't say I'm wearing house slippers right now. So he he Dan went outside of the front lawn he looked towards the corner of Lee and South Woodland. He lived on South Woodland. No, he lived on Lee. South Woodland is like the intersection, a house away from him. His dad got dressed and came outside and like they didn't see anything out of the ordinary. So Robert went back to bed and started reading a book. And then Dan went back to his room. He says he started to clean again. And then he was like, oh, and then at that point, I remembered Lisa was supposed to come over. And when interviewed... The detectives were like, so did you think that that could have been Lisa? And he was like, well, no, I didn't think that for a couple minutes, but then I thought it might have been her. So I went back outside. Like, I don't know. I, I, this is what I, this is, this is why I'm like, this is so silly or not silly, but like, so that's your girlfriend. I remember how I felt about said husband in high school where like love notes all the time. And if we were supposed to be sneaking, but I'm also very, 
as as my mother lovingly says, I'm also very anal retentive. So if I knew somebody was sneaking over and I wanted them to be successful at it, I would be literally counting down like the time watching for this person so that they could successfully sneak over. Right. So I get you called your sister to kind of kill some time, also check in on your sister, but like, and then you're cleaning your room, but like, you're not looking at the clock going, okay, it's 1230. Okay. It's 1245. Okay. It's... 1250 right i could understand losing track of time but the fact that he says he forgot she was supposed to come over Mm -hmm. is a little sus in my opinion right and so when he went back outside this is when he found lisa's bike hidden in the bushes beside the sidewalk at his neighbor's house so at the corner of lee in south woodland this lot and i have like looked at it on google maps and it is there are so many trees. There are like huge bushes that line the sidewalk. Like it is very secluded. So what you're telling me, it's a perfect place for murder. Well, it's also like a perfect makeout spot. Like mm-hmm. if you were going to sneak out and hook up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, it is really hard to see past the bushes, like into the yard essentially. Mm-hmm. And so he found her bike sort of like stuck in the bushes there. And he says he like didn't know if it was her so he touched it just to reassure himself that it was and stood it up and he told the police this when they got there so he's like so like my fingerprints are probably on it because i did touch the bike and then he says he went back inside he called her house got the answering machine and then called 911, but didn't tell his parents and when asked why he said well i was just too busy calling and running around like i wasn't thinking straight but when they got there and originally were talking, he said he didn't hear the screams. His dad heard the screams. And then later he would be like, no, I heard the screams. And then he also said, well, my parents knew she was coming over, but they didn't know she was coming over. So so my, my question is, though, if said dad heard screams, told son to go investigate because he's naked, you dad's not gonna follow up on screen well he did he went out like on the front porch and he said neither he or dan saw anything strange so he went back inside and like went back to reading his book closed i hoped (laughs) hopefully because (laughs) then after the cops started searching the area dan went inside and woke up his dad who came out to talk to the police and dan went back to his room and went to sleep dan come on now you're not worried one bit about your girlfriend who's MIA yeah so what I have read did not paint Dan in this light which is funny because I did read stuff by James Renner and that's Mm -hmm. not the working theory that I read but now it very much makes sense of why police were suspicious because in Every true crime book you ever read or documentary or even scary movies, it's always the boyfriend, right? Like, they're like, oh, it's always a crime of passion. It's always the boyfriend. Yeah, the husband did it. The husband did it. So, the people who lived next door to Dan, the woman who lived there, her name was Holly Bush. She lived there with her husband. And at the time, her 87-year-old brother was also staying with them because he was visiting from Atlanta. And she said that she had watched the 11 o'clock news 
and was like in the kitchen painting her nails and then she heard a noise outside and she said my first thought was that somebody was tampering with the rental car we had in the driveway I turned out the kitchen light and looked out the window I saw nothing I turned on the yard light and looked out the door and I saw nothing and so at first she thought it might have been her brother but then she could hear him like upstairs in the guest room she's like Mm -hmm. okay it's not him and so she just went to bed and then she woke up to screaming she said it sounded like a child screaming three screams there's a scream a pause a scream a pause and another scream and she asked her husband do you hear that and he goes look out the window and so she called the police when she called them they were like there's already police on the way like somebody else has already called about this and when they asked her about it she told them that like the kids who lived on lee road would like cut through their yard a lot mm-hmm. um and they had asked the dryferts who live next door like please don't do that don't cut through the yard and she said recently i saw a young woman come from the sedgwick side which is the street behind lee road so this is like where kim who lived behind she lived on sedgwick and she's like, I would see the kids like coming through from there. And she said, recently, I saw a young woman come through from the Sedgwick side. She walked through our yard and went through the shrubbery between our property and the Dreiferts, but I didn't speak to her. So we can kind of like infer that that was probably Lisa sneaking over to see Dan. Right. So. So already, though, I'm getting more consistency from the neighbors than I am from Dan and his dad, which come on what are you what are you doing you're a pediatric like person of all all people who are anal retentive like what are what are you doing the um the police officers who were there investigating um one of them was a canine unit he had a police dog named drill who was like pretty good he had been like successful in a lot of like cases with tracking and things like that so he smelled her bike he like hit on something he sort of went down and turned essentially like he was going around this like heavily wooded area Mm -hmm. and then he lost the scent and just like stopped huh so the police started searching that area and they were like moving back towards the dryford house um they went down their the driveway of the bushes and that, like, essentially would take them straight up to the Dreyford's property. And they were shining their flashlights around looking for footprints. And that is when they found Lisa. So she was wearing... It makes me so sad that it's described as, like, a pretty blue turtleneck. Because it's like, of course, she, like, got cute because she, she was coming to see Dan. So she had a turtleneck on, which was pushed up, like, over her bra her jeans and underwear were pulled down and were around her right leg her left tennis shoe was off and laying next to her and she was basically covered in blood um someone had stabbed her to death uh the final count is she had been stabbed 22 times mostly from behind so this is a very violent yes murder very violent um she was already dead they checked for a pulse there was nothing and so they started like roping off the scene and then i also read at the scene they found uh footprints yes they did take a cast of footprints and they were a very unique pattern for a shoe they were 
herring herringbone footprints um which you know there are like pictures and stuff of this like if you look it up online and they are like it is a fairly unique uh pattern to have on the bottom of a shoe yeah um which makes me think of like who was it who was the killer in california that got caught because of his shoes oh oh god i remember but i can't i can't remember who it was was. it wasn't the night stalker was it Maybe. It might have been. I, I just remember he, I think it was. he had like a really unique shoe and they found out that only like a few pairs had been sold. And so it was really easy to like connect it to him. I um, always think about with the Night Stalker because he's been so heavily romanticized in media. Thanks, Ryan Murphy. Um, but I always think about the fact that like about reading him in, in real life, how a lot of the people that he like robbed and stuff like that talked about how bad he smelled. (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm kind of squicked out the fact that like, like, you know, I I've seen pictures and stuff and I know that there was like women following Richard Ramirez and stuff like that. But then I just think about the fact that like in real life, he smelled like he didn't bathe for weeks on end and smelled like, death and blood and all sorts of other viscera and i'm just like that's gross that's not attractive why are we sexualizing this man beyond beyond like that fact why are we sexualizing this man yeah there's like a whole it's like there's a psychological name for that for when people are like infatuated with serial killers it's wild um they also found there was really deep bruising around Lisa's neck that looked like somebody had probably grabbed her necklace and pulled it backwards, choking her while they were stabbing her. Like, the only solace in this, if you can even call it that, is that they determined that she died very quickly, like, possibly before she, like, even knew what had happened to her. So, at least she was not, like, suffering during this. Um, also because it is still pretty terrible i read that even though her clothes were disturbed she was not there was no evidence of sexual assault which is correct also i'm not gonna say it's good but it's you gotta take them where you can yeah get them in situations like this the winds because there aren't very many no so they never found this knife like object that she was stabbed with I was going to say, they really didn't have any physical evidence beyond the shoe prints. Yeah, and she was essentially like 30 feet from Dan's back door where they found her. So So it's like... So close. It feels very um, like Casey Becker at the beginning of Scream as her parents are up the driveway. Yes. Like, it's really sad. The other thing to note is that in the months leading up to Lisa's murder... A number of houses in the neighborhood, both on Lee and Sedgwick, which is the street behind, as I mentioned, had been burglarized. Um, Someone cut through the Rathbone, so that's Kim's house, behind Dan. Um, They cut through their screen door with a knife. Across the street from them, somebody else, like, woke up because their alarm was going off because someone was trying to get in their house. And, like, a few days before that, somebody had climbed up their gutters and opened their skylight. 
And Good then God. that's why Holly, who lived next door, when she heard the noises outside, like looked because she thought that it was she was probably the same. Yeah. Right. So she thought someone was like breaking into but her car. For someone to climb up to the gutters, which that would be t- I don't I don't know, I think it would be kind of noisy. And then to get through the skylight. <laughs> like this is a very bold intruder, whoever yeah. this is. So like I said, after that, like Dan went back inside and went to sleep until they found Lisa's body. And then they obviously took him in for questioning. And he did have, this is so stupid that you even have to phrase it this way, but he did have what they called an appropriate reaction. He was like devastated and showed signs of grief when he was told that she was gone. Just, I'm just, I'm just saying I, that yeah. because there's also like a lot of things that later are going to paint Dan as like not so great. So, well, and then on top of all that, you know, we don't, in this case, we don't have really the DNA technology. It, it it was around in the 90s, but it was not prominently used. The turnaround time for it was very slow. It, it's not as sophisticated as it is today. So the evidence they had to gather was really kind of hard evidence. And they had, they used a lot of like, polygraph and stuff like that which as we have discussed on a previous episode like how accurate are polygraph tests i don't know (laughs) yeah they're not super accurate (laughs) but that's also what they used later on to kind of convict people yeah the interviews they did yes um so from the jump like i very much for something that is considered an unsolved case or a cold case like i feel like it deserves a fresh set of eyes and it also might be one of those cases too knowing kind of the end of like people and stuff like that it might be something we never get closure on and not just we i mean like the family of lisa correct like they may never get that full closure even if they can find dna evidence like it is one very small amount of closure because right. it's I mean it's not going to bring her back like no and I don't know if finding out now like with so much distance put in between like that grief is probably so different now having lost her so long ago like right. I don't know if that's going to open like fresh wounds right. or, or what so I don't know if they even want that at this point over the next few days like over that weekend the AP posse were like together all the time like they essentially had like um sleepovers like they were together like 24 7 right they were with dan watching like the news reports the next night and he got really pissed off because the tv reporters were hinting that dan was like the prime suspect he got mad about that and so chris one of their friends and um the other dan dan messenger and their friend scott were all at Dan Dreifert's house and um, some of them went over to Lisa's house and asked to go up into her room and her parents just let them go up there like by themselves and hang out in her room there's a police investigation going on right oh and so sorry for that it got a little loud on my end yeah and then um, Debbie came home from college obviously like text called her and told her that something terrible had happened she came home from college and Tex and Kevin met her at the RTA station when she came home to, like, bring her home. 
And she and Dan went downstairs into that Howling Commandos room, you know, in the music wing of the mansion to talk about what was going on. And uh, Chris later told the detectives that that was when they started floating the possibility that Kevin might have killed Lisa. He said that Shane McGee and John George had heard about a month before that Kevin had wanted to kill both Dan and Lisa because he'd been in love with Lisa for two years and Dan had stolen her away from him. But they never reported these threats. No. They waited until the day after she was murdered and then went to the Shaker Heights police and said, you know, somebody told Kevin that Dan had sex with Lisa and Kevin went like nuts. He got really aggressive, both like language wise and physically. Um, he was obviously distraught. He said he wanted to kill Dan and launch war on the female race. In some context, he said that he wanted to kill Lisa and Dan Dreifer. And then he said, well, I can't remember the exact wording he used, but it was really clear what he meant. And then John was like, I said he's sleeping with her. And Kevin freaked out. He was like, that asshole, that asshole. I hate him. I'm going to kill him. I want her dead. And then stormed off and left me and Shane. And at this point, it's it's called into question like why did they fixate on Kevin like I everybody who's talking about this is very like well I don't remember exactly what he said but like I think he said something like this and that's how I took it right it, I heard from so-and-so that so-and-so heard him say this it felt very group Dan obviously is getting this this rap and it's insinuating the boyfriend did it right because that's even even back in the 90s that was a thing um but why not kevin kevin's an outsider it's all circumstantial evidence right it would just take the heat off of dan that's why they can't like it, it that's why they can't say specifically what kevin said it's just well you'd get the gist of it yeah but and here's the thing if it truly was if kevin was truly like this terrible person who wanted people dead why would tex be friends with him and like be friends with him so much to tell him like hey by the way dan's out of like you know the mental facility and lisa we're all gonna hang out later tonight right why would you why would anybody still i mean i guess i don't know because tex doesn't seem like he had the greatest like character references either so maybe that's why but it just it seems very convenient that they all suddenly are offering up this information about Kevin that has never been like documented before. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's no there's really nothing documenting like any type of besides his emotional outburst, which I would say different than violent outbursts. Um, there's nothing really documenting that like Kevin is a disturbed individual right. or like somebody that would be inclined to be violent if it really the only evidence of that is that it the violence may be towards himself rather than other people he did have suicidal ideation he had been on like lithium or a generic brand of it but didn't like how it made him feel so like he and his parents decided that he could like sort of taper off and stop taking it so if if anything it was more that like he would maybe hurt himself rather than anybody else right which again because we are talking about the 90s the like for something that happened and had prominence and stuff the stigma around mental illness back then was so different than i would say today i mean there's still stigma but like 
so different in terms of like how we treat people and how we treat people that are dealing with any mental issues and stuff like that like it night and day almost there's still definitely things we could be progressing on but yeah we we are a little more understanding that like it's not in these people's control sometimes the, the right and happen. if you have and you if you have a mental illness it is much more likely that you are going to hurt yourself rather than others right on september 15th so this is thursday into friday is when lisa was killed this would be that saturday mm-hmm. uh becca boatwright who i mentioned before went to the police and said that the day before Friday in the afternoon, she'd gone to Arabica and she found Kevin sitting there and she said somehow or other, I got onto the topic of rape and like (laughs) the new, (laughs) it's because like some of the TV like broadcasts were saying that she had been raped because of how she was found. Gotcha. So that's probably how it came up. And Kevin, and Kevin said said it, it's just like, I know, let me just drop this a little, you know, we were having our coffee and then rape came up as it does, you know, again, listeners, sorry for any trigger warnings. We will, I think we will trigger this appropriately uh, when we advertise it and describe it. And Kevin said, I don't think she was raped. I told him that I had heard she had been hit on the head with a blunt object. And he said, no, I think she was stabbed. So this is what Becca says happened. Now, we have to question this because later um, during the trial that comes out of all of this, when she was on the stand, there is a discrepancy here that was pointed out. Becca said this happened on a Friday in the afternoon. Right. She was taking classes at John Carroll University at the time, and her class started at, like, 1 or one thirty. Okay. So at the time that she's saying she was at Arabica, she would have been in class. And that and would she, be fairly easy to fact check. Yes. So she's like, well, then I, it happened on a different day then. And they're like, but so there is a discrepancy in what you're telling us here. So they're poking holes in her story also, during the trial. like how would he know that the day after like how would he know that if anything that you're going to read about your former like love interest you're getting from the news and the news is the one saying that she was both stabbed and like there's also the fact that their principal told everyone that she hadn't been raped because he felt that that was going to be more comforting than like they didn't know they didn't know at that time whether she had been or not right but he when they put the news out on friday morning to everybody at the high school he said that and told the counselors that so that if any like of the children any of the high schoolers were coming to talk to them about like their feelings as they were processing it that they could reassure them with this information so he like started this rumor that then everybody like knew but then later everyone's like, well, then how did Kevin know that? Kevin's the only one that knew that. But he's not. Like, the principal told everyone in school this. So it just sounds like everybody was trying to gang up on Kevin. Yeah. So, like, Tex is being questioned by the police. And he said that he had told Kevin at the coffee shop that Lisa was visiting Dan that night. And then they put that in a, like, they added that, like, retyped it into a police report. And... At some point, there was like a new record that appeared signed by Tex and his mom on September 17th that has been erroneously backdated to September 14th. So they are essentially trying to make it look like they got this information earlier than they did that Kevin knew about this Hmm. at, at Arabica. And so... 
Kevin was brought in at 11 p.m. on September 15th, and he denied ever threatening Lisa. He said that that conversation with Shane and John where he said he was going to kill them never took place. And after leaving Shaker Square the night of the murder, like when he saw Tex at Arabica, he said he went home. Both of his mother and his father saw him go into his room around 1130. At 11.45, he went downstairs and watched CNN because he couldn't sleep. Which, I mean, if you want something to put you to sleep, CNN. Especially 90s CNN. But unfortunately, the police did not believe Kevin because of the AP posse and what they have told them. So from this point on, Kevin is the only suspect. Right. In their eyes. And all of that inconsistency with Dan and the evidence around it, like, it's just, it doesn't matter. Right. So they searched Kevin's home on September 16th. They found drawings of pentagrams, a devil face, a heart tattooed with a Christian cross stabbed and dripping with blood. And a very melodramatic diary. Like the first page said, this is day one of my diary. My mom is a bitch and I hate her. I'll explain tomorrow. So what you're telling me is just kind of typical metalhead teenage It's things. very like edgelord teenage boy. Like I'm going to say these controversial things, but like. Yeah, I'm sure if we read my 16 year old diary, we would both be dying of overdramatic laughter yeah. because it just. it. He did also some more problematic things that he said right he wrote i just want to take over the world make the blacks and jews and slavs and latines and the yellows and the semites subordinate to us i am worth absolutely nothing so yeah so this is why i'm saying like i'm not saying he was a saint he clearly had some really awful views of people but just because you are racist does not mean you are a murderer doesn't make you a good person right but yes very much true like those are not the same right so uh, the police are already doctoring evidence logs so that's giving a false impression that he was a suspect before dan's friends told them about him they also got samples of dan's writing too but didn't really care about it even though they are just as bad They found letters to Lisa that he wrote while he was at the clinic, and he wrote, I tried to kill myself. I need out of here. This place has fucked me up. After I get out, give me some time to return to normal. I don't want you or I to make any poor decisions because of this place. Um, He quoted lyrics from a song that said, I'm sorry, now I killed you for our love was something fine. Until they come to get me, I shall hold your hand in mine. And another note, he said, someday I'll go too far and do something very bad and you'll yell at me and be serious and I won't be able to handle it. But you can't let me get away with murder. I look at you and see what I've done to you. I'm a bad influence on people. Chris is another example of this. And believe it or not, I think I've made Kevin worse than he already was. And then in another one, he wrote, I want to poke your eyes out with my favorite pocket knife, which are lyrics to a song that he wrote. So these are also pretty explicit and scary notes, Mm -hmm. but the police are just ignoring it because they're focused. They want it to be Kevin so badly. Right. Well, wouldn't it be so nice and neat and wrapped up in kind of a nice, neat police bow if like it was Kevin? Yeah. So they were able to rule Tex out as a suspect because he was on the phone with Debbie at the time that this, so like Debbie hung up with her brother mm-hmm. and then talked to Tex on the phone. So again, what are all of these kids doing up? I know. At like the, at, on a school night, 
with school the next I, I just I can't I can't but with tax being on the phone with Debbie at 12 19 that that call lasted until 1254. So he would not while it's ruling out tax, it is giving more time for Dan to have been alone prior to when people heard screaming. Right. And so the police essentially went to like a local FBI agent and a profiler who was working out of the FBI Academy. And he said like, Kevin has no ego. He has low self-esteem. His personality definitely definitely fits that of a person capable of committing the crime. So they flew to Quantico on September 25th, these Shaker Heights police detectives and the special agent, to question some, like, profilers about Kevin. They didn't even, like... They had all that evidence of Dan. Why not? Wild, logical idea... Why not There's eliminate both suspects right. or be like, oh, one is more than they, the other. They looked at the shoe prints and were like, well, it doesn't match anything for Dan or Kevin, so we don't need that anymore. And they found <laughs> they found a fingerprint and they couldn't match it to Kevin. So like, oh, well, whatever. And they just disregarded it. So there Stop. is this evidence Stop. that rules him out and they just so badly want it to be him that they are just disregarding it. But uh, oh, and so sorry, just the peanuts. Uh, I know the peanuts. Wah. I know. So they start to formulate like this idea that he could like even be a serial killer, oh and they start going over strategies for a polygraph interview with him. And so they're asking like, how do we essentially like how do we break him? And the words that they used were, how do we clockwork orange him? Like. And this profiler is like, well, I'm not saying that it's him or not. Like, have you looked at the boyfriend? Because more often than not, it's the boyfriend. They're like, we don't like we're not asking about the boyfriend. We want to know how to break this kid. And so he's like, well, whoever it is, you want to start at night. You want to question him for hours on end. Give him lots of like caffeine and cigarettes and talk about the crime in the third person. So classes at Ohio State, the Ohio State had started the next week. So Kevin had moved into his dorm and was starting to like move on with his life he was like wow like my roommates are really cool like i click with my roommate really well he's got a girlfriend who's really nice like for once like things are kind of starting to look like i might get a fresh start and be like kind of okay here and uh shaker heights police already have this plan they send a undercover agent down to pose as a janitor in kevin's dorm and surveil him oh my god and this is what Shaker Heights taxpayers' money right. went towards. On October 26th, when he was on the phone with his dad, there was a knock at the door. It was Shaker Heights Police Sergeant Tom Gray. Kevin told his dad he would call him back. And Sergeant Gray was like, you need to come out in the hallway with me. And he was like, I'm here from, he goes, oh, you're from Shaker Heights Police. And he was like, yeah, I need your help. So he lived in one of those college dorms where like you had a common living area, but mm-hmm. like multiple bedrooms. Mm-hmm. And so while he was in his room with the door closed, talking to his dad, his other two like roommates rooms, their doors were open and there were people there hanging mm-hmm. out. So there's already like a group there that is overhearing all of this and being mm. like, what is going on? Right. Right. And this is like the first days that you're on campus. So this is already like awful. Yeah. So they were like well can we go talk at like campus police and he was like well i don't really want to do that they're like well we have a hotel room at the ramada like you could come talk to me in my hotel room 
So Kevin's like, okay, we can do that. So he goes to the hotel with Gray. And he said that he had like a soft approach to getting Kevin to like get trustful of him and like, you know, get him calm before they give this polygraph. So this is at night. This is at like 10 o'clock at night when this is starting. In a hotel room. In a hotel no room. no lawyers, no like any, it's no. just you and a cop. Yep. And he, he started to call his dad back before he left and then was like, well, can I call my parents later? They're like, you can call your parents whenever you want. And he was like, okay. So they're chatting. He's like talking about how much he likes school. He like mentioned that he had recently mastered like one of the Mario Brothers games on Nintendo. Like he loved playing Nintendo and was really good at it. He like kind of brought up how he was like worried with all of like the conflict in the Middle East and that he was afraid they were going to reinstate the draft. And uh, Gray was like, well, you know, when I was your age, I had to worry about getting drafted in Vietnam. So I, I understand that. He's like, okay, so like once you're ready to stop talking, I'll just take you back to your dorm. He goes, oh, I'm a night person. It's okay. Oh. He's like, okay, well, can I get you a pop? And he's like, yeah, a Coke and a can. So he gets him a soda. And he's like, I just want to remind you, I'm a police officer. I'm investigating a crime in which you're still a suspect. So you have the right to remain silent. You don't have to talk to me. And Kevin's like, no, I want to help. Like, I want to help however I can. Oh, and Kevin. You can stop whenever you want. I know. You have. A, you can get an attorney. He's like, I know my rights. So he's like, okay, well, tell me what you think about the incident. And Kevin said, I'm afraid that Tex did it. And what scares me even more is that Tex might have done it for me. I don't think I could live with the guilt of it if Tex killed Lisa for me. So that's interesting. <laughs> and then Gray was like, well, do you enjoy thinking about things like theoretically? And he was like, well, yeah. He's like, okay, well, that's what I need help with. So could you put yourself in the place of the person who killed Lisa and just walk me through what you think could happen? And Kevin... This did not raise any red flags I at know. all. Like, And Kevin said, so just between us? And he's like, yeah, like just between us. He just said, he just said prior to that, I'm a cop. I'm investigating this murder. You have your rights. I know my rights. Dumb teenage It's also stuff. being recorded. Yes. So, oh. Yeah. So he asked, like, do you think Lisa was riding her bike or was she walking? And he said, I think she was riding her bike. I think whoever did it, like, grabbed her off her bike and then the bike went into the bushes. And whoever did this didn't plan on it to happen. Um, He didn't really think about it ahead of time. He was just walking around that night, kind of wandering, and he saw Lisa, and when these two people got close, something snapped. Something snapped, and this anger came out of him that he couldn't control. He knocked Lisa off her bike, and she was stabbed with a knife, and she died so fast that he got scared. He didn't want that to happen, so he started acting frantic, running around, doing things really quick. I get that Kevin is, like, so smart, but... and this is this might be spot on. This might be kind of spot on to like what actually happened because he really thought about it. Right. But this is so dumb. I know. And then they ask what happened next. And he goes, he ran. I'm sure he'll never kill again. I'm sure he's sorry that Lisa died. And so tragically, Gray, tragically dumb. I know. Saying, Kevin, I'm afraid that he might snap again and hurt someone. He's like, no, I don't think he would. I think he's gone on to another life and this could never happen again. And so he asked, well, how do you think she died? And he goes, well, I think she was stabbed from the front. He stabbed her once or twice, maybe. And then he asked to go to the bathroom. And when he goes to the bathroom, like, this is just one of those things where it's, like, the minutia of what's happening are just so strange. But he, like, went to the bathroom, and then he tried to come out, and the door was stuck. So, like, the 
the detective like gray had to like pry the door open to let him out and then he was like can i get another soda and they're like it's getting really late like do you want to go to sleep he's like no i want to stay awake and he's like well how familiar are you with that area and he's like well i walk around at night but i don't usually go over there i usually just go across the street to the high school and like walk the track at night and he's like okay well where do you think the person who stabbed lisa went to wash the blood off his hands and he said i think the way lisa was stabbed the person didn't get any blood on him and then when he asked how he thought the killer felt my buddy kevin said guilty i think he felt guilty because i always feel guilty when i do things i can't control and i feel guilt about lisa's death because i should have been there to stop this person logically i know i shouldn't feel that way and so it's just this long thing and over this course of this interrogation they interrogated him for over 36 hours in this hotel room good god and he maybe slept for like three or four hours out of that whole time and then they were like well would you be willing to take a polygraph test and he said yes i will do whatever to help like i will take a lie detector test take my fingerprints like i just want to help you find her so that like everybody can kind of move on or find what happened to her and so they brought this like polygraph machine to come in and test him and the rules for how you run this test are that the person has to be like relaxed and rested right they can't be all jacked up on caffeine he asked to smoke before they took the test so now he's also got nicotine in his system which is going to affect readings and they said well do you want to go home and go to bed he's like no i would rather just get it done with so he takes the test he fails Uh, well how else are we gonna succeed in this test right i don't know it they go back and interrogate him some more and he's like well can i take another test like i think i was just tired like maybe i can sleep and then i'll take another test and then there's a whole thing where like the hotel room was only booked until two so they had to leave (laughs) and like go eat at a pizza place and then they come back and they give him another test and he fails that one as well and he's like i don't laughing but it's just like hijinksy like i know and it's just like these people in authority like why 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 are you focused on focus on the evidence and solve the case like you're not you shouldn't be focusing on booking a person so it's like an easy solve you should be focusing on like what is the evidence before us i don't know i i will also say i've seen too many like true crime shows that glorify like thanks law and order that glorify like cops wanting to like actually solve the case and then they do find that evidence but it's usually the boyfriend yeah i also at this point think that like they kind of had to go all in on this because they had already done some ethically questionable things to like point them in his direction right so it would be really bad if then it turned out to be someone else and they had doctored any any, like information or anything like that where where was like all of the public defense lawyers at this point where are they at yeah so basically kevin fails both these polygraph tests and then he starts to panic a little bit and he's like i don't i know that the test can't lie but i know i'm telling the truth and he starts to get really agitated and then he tells the detective i feel suicidal i feel like i'm gonna hurt myself i need to see my doctor i need to be committed so he calls his doctor he like consents to being sent to a facility for a while and this has to kind of halt the investigation (laughs) um 
So this is a roughly good place to stop for the week. Yes. And uh, there is more to come uh, to discuss about the true crime and tragedy of Lisa Pruitt's murder. And um, we hope you come back and join us next week so that you can find out what happens. I mean, I guess you can always Google it or something like that in between. But why would you spoil it for yourself? I would also tell you that you're probably not going to be satisfied with the ending because it is somewhat of an unsolved murder still. So uh, next week we will wrap that up. So please join us for part two next weekend. In the meantime, as always, you can find us on Lake Erie Library on Instagram. We are working on getting on other social media. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube, maybe Apple. (laughs) We're still working on that as well. They don't like us. And yeah, as always, uh, stay safe and enjoy kind of the autumnal season post Halloween and stay spooky, friends. (laughs) 